Well, good evening again. It's a great joy to be with you. Um, and please turn with me in your Bibles to the psalm we've just sung, Psalm 129. If you're in one of the church Bibles, I think it's page 624. Psalm 129, that's where we're going to be spending our time together this evening. As we're turning that up, though, let's pray again and ask God for his help. Our great God and heavenly Father, we praise you that you are by grace our Father. Thank you that we can come so freely to you this evening, that we can gather in this church building, uh, free from the fear of persecution, of physical danger. We think of our brothers and sisters around the world, even now, who meet in fear of their life and their liberty. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for the fact that not only are you the God who loves us, but you are the God who speaks to us as a father does to his children. And so, Lord, we pray now that you, the speaking God, would address us in power and in might. By your Holy Spirit, Lord, would you comfort us? Would you rebuke us where rebuke is needed? Would you exhort us? Would you train us? Would you teach us? Would you, in every way and shape and form, fashion us increasingly, both together as your people and individually as your children, into the likeness of Jesus, your Son? Thank you for him. And we pray now that all the words of my mouth, the meditations of our own hearts together, will be pleasing, acceptable in your sight, our great God, our rock and our redeemer. In Christ's name, amen. So, Psalm 129. A song of ascents. They have greatly oppressed me from my youth. Let Israel say they have greatly oppressed me from my youth, but they have not gained the victory over me. Plowmen have plowed my back and made their furrows long. But the Lord is righteous. He has cut me free from the cords of the wicked. May all who hate Zion be turned back in shame. May they be like grass on the roof which withers before it can grow. A reaper cannot fill his hands with it, nor one who gathers fill his arms. May those who pass by not say to them, the blessing of the Lord be on you. We bless you in the name of the Lord. I'd like you to uh, think with me, if you would, of the last great journey you undertook. Uh, perhaps not a journey in a car, uh, a great walk or a, or a hike. Perhaps you can uh, remember the feeling where you're going on a, a long trek and it's a glorious day and your feet are passing over the ground and it's like your, your feet are barely touching the ground. You think you can keep on going forever and ever. You're as light as air and you're treading on it. Uh, maybe the picture is the reverse, and long walks are a great trial to you. I must say the idea of being lighter than air is rarely a problem for me, uh, as is often observed. It's, it's sometimes the fact that when we go on a long walk, a long journey, actually it feels that our feet are pretty heavy laden. The reason we're talking about journeys is because this psalm we said in the, the little superscription there is a song of ascents. It's part of 15 psalms here in this little part of the Psalter, which God's people would have sung as they went up together to Jerusalem from all the different parts of the nation they found themselves in. There are a few festivals each year where everyone was expected to go. So you'd gather together your clan, your village, your family, and up you would go all together. It was a reminder of who Israel were as God's people as they went to praise his name, to offer sacrifices, to worship together. But as they journeyed, and if you were to read through these psalms, you would see this really clearly. It was also a reminder of the world they lived in, 
not only the God to whom they went, but the world that so often was hostile to him and to his people. A world where the present experience of God's people was actually often bitter rather than sweet. And actually that's an experience that is absolutely true for us today. And so the Psalms they sung then and the Psalms we sing today rightly reflect that. Now, I think a little while ago, actually, you guys were in the Songs of Ascent together. You may have noticed, if you've read it through in your own time or from what you remember, that actually they're quite carefully grouped. And as you read on through, you can see that each of them, that they come in triplets. Psalms 1, 2, 3 work together as a little unit, and then 4, 5, 6, and so on and so forth. And in the first psalm of each little trio, often the psalmist is inviting God's people to reflect on the hardness of life. There's a progression from the the barrenness of the world away from the heavenly Jerusalem and God's temple, and then a progression as the people move towards God's courts and where they meet with him. And this psalm, Psalm 129, is a, a, a number one. It's the first of a little trio that runs. Just flip back her page with me, and you can just see this pattern as we go. Psalm 120, which is the first one, there is distress in verse 6 to 7. The psalmist lives amongst those who are not for peace but are for war. In Psalm 123, God's people are held in contempt and ridicule. Look at verse 3 and verse 4. We have endured no end of contempt, no end of ridicule from the arrogant. Psalm 126, the present experience of God's people in verses 5 and 6 is of sowing with tears, of getting on with the work God has given them, but in a world that only brings forth tears rather than fruitfulness, hard work and sorrow. And that's why Psalm 129 that we've just sung and we're going to meditate on now is truly a song for the heavy-footed. It's another one of these psalms that reflects on the challenges, the reality that the pilgrimage of faith is one that is done with leaden feet and often even heavier hearts. But there's a wonderful pastoral comfort in that right as we begin. You know, one of the challenges, I think, of of visiting a congregation I don't know is that I, I don't know you guys well. I don't know what you're walking through. But even that snapshot of the prayers and simply the knowledge of a, a frustrated world east of Eden will suggest that more than one person here tonight will be really wondering why they're here. They'll be feeling burdened bowed down with the weight of the world and opposition or of the flesh and the battle against sin or the persecution and temptations of the devil. And if that is you, if you are here tonight feeling the reality of sorrow and curse, let me say that God's word has space for that. It's one of the great blessings of the Psalter. That that is an emotion that actually God addresses to us as his people such that we might look to him, to take our eyes off ourselves, to take our eyes even off the trials we're going through and cast ourselves afresh on God. And my hope and prayer as we walk through for the next 20 minutes or so is that we will see that whatever the trials of life we face together or apart, whatever the real and cruel opposition of people, either here in our own context or further afield in the world, no problem we will ever encounter is so great that it derails God's people. Jesus wonderfully said that he will build his church, that the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. We'll return to that 
in a little while, that no obstruction is too great for God to overcome. And that means that even when our feet are heaviest, well, we can put one foot in front of the other. That's where we're headed. We're going to look at it uh, in a couple of main points. First, in verses 1 to 4, uh, the psalmist invites Israel to sing of the comfort of God-centered preservation. Cast your eyes down again at verse 1 with me. A little bit like uh, we've just been singing. The presenter stands up in verse 1 and calls out, they have greatly oppressed me from my youth. And as his voice is lifted in song in verse 1, he calls on the people in verse 2 to respond. You can almost hear it, can't you, as they're walking up to the temple. The voices kick in in verse 2. Israel says, they have greatly oppressed me from my youth. I love the fact that the whole people are singing, but they're using the first person singular. Do you notice that? Let Israel, the people, say, they have greatly oppressed me from my youth. Uh, from my youth. It's as though we as individuals are invited to reflect on our own situation from the position of being God's people all together. And the nation's history then informs the individual singer. But it's a sad history. It's a hard history, one of cruel oppression and with real pain. You see how they reflect on that. From Israel's youth, they have greatly oppressed me. This is harking back to the days of, of the Exodus in Egypt. That's often what youth refers to in the Old Testament. And, and so we're cast back to that point when Pharaoh murderously opposed and oppressed God's people, casting boys into the river, making them do hard and bitter labor with no resources, seeking to punish God's people as an expression of his own rebellion against God. We think back then to the opposition of hostile kings as Israel wandered through the wilderness on their way to the promised land, as people rejected them or fought them or frustrated them. Think of the oppression of the Philistines and the other nations, even when they entered the land, those who had ruled so harshly over them. We think then even of the oppression under the two exiles, under Assyria and under Babylon. The history of God's people, the psalmist says, from youth is one of oppression. And there's really vivid imagery that he uses. Look down with me at verse 3. I don't wonder what you made of this as we sang it. Plowmen have plowed my back and made their furrows long. Think of what um, plows do to the soil. Maybe you'll see them out in the fields. Often it's more industrialized, of course, now than it would have been in those days. But the plow is, is hitched to the oxen back then. And the plowman then orients it ready to to plow a nice straight furrow. And either the wooden blade or then the the metal blade gouges its way into the soil so as to turn it over and expose it to the air. Great clods of earth are ripped up as the, the lines are dragged repeatedly backwards and forwards through the living earth. Now imagine that as a picture applied to your back. I can almost feel my shoulder blades tensing up. In sympathy, the psalmist says, Look, Israel is like a nation that has been plowed under over and over again. David alluded to the fact that I used to play quite a bit of rugby. Back in the days when I was playing lots, you were allowed to euphemistically use your feet. Uh, Some of you who used to play might remember that. If you were on the wrong side of the ball, it was perfectly legitimate. I can come over here and I can show you. I won't ask David to come and lie down and give a demonstration. But if you were on the wrong side of the ball, you could actually just rip your foot down to push the person back. I remember, you know, matches afterwards in the shower with my back looking like it had been flogged. Red striped lines scratched across. That is what this 
oppression is like, the plowing of the nation. I wonder if we know what that oppression is like. Probably not, I would hazard a guess, the nature of the oppression the psalmist is talking about. But even as we sing and read of this, we have to face up to the fact this is our family history. This is part of the DNA of being God's people, is to share in an experience of of opposition and persecution. For Israel then and throughout the church's life, there have always been people, anti-God, anti-his people, and anti-God's work in the world. And it's wonderful to, to see, even looking at you, many nations represented. You know, this is a, a truth that is vividly felt by our brothers and sisters around the world. This type of aggressive plowing is still a present tense reality. According to a 2013 study from a seminary back in the US, an average of 100,000 Christians have been killed in the last decade. So that's 2003 to 13. That will only have spiked, sadly, in parts of the world since then when we consider what's been going on in the Middle East. I did some pretty grim maths, and that works out to 11 Christians killed somewhere in the world every hour, seven days a week, 365 days a year. They have greatly oppressed me from my youth, let Israel say. This is what it's like to live in a world. And you know, always behind this oppression scripturally can be seen the devil. From the very days of the youth of God's people, right there in the Garden of Eden, he has been opposed to God and his creatures. The seed of the serpent has warred against the seed of the woman from the very day of the fall. Hugh Latimer, one of the great heroic bishops of the Reformation in England in the 16th century, referred to the devil as the most diligent plowman in all of England. It's a striking phrase when we think of the imagery here of Psalm 129. And of course, this is supremely expressed in the life and death of Jesus himself, the the summation of the true Israel. Think of the plowing he endured by God's enemies, human and satanic. The suffering servant who, who offers his back to those who beat him, who physically and metaphorically and spiritually was plowed over by those who hated him. The second Adam, the true Israel, experiencing in himself to the very depths the the dregs and bitterness of the opposition of the world. It's worth just pressing pause even now and saying, therefore, that God knows in his son the pain of God's people. That even as Israel sings of the oppression they've had from their youth, and even perhaps as we start feeling some of the oppression that that might be written in our own personal histories, we can honestly say, God knows. Because his son knows. He is a great high priest who is sympathetic to our weaknesses. It's a comfort, I hope, of sorts even, in our own pain today. But why is the psalmist dwelling on these things? I don't know how you find it. Often even singing these psalms, people can find it a bit confusing because, you know, why are we being so gloomy? Well, here, ultimately, it is to only rejoice in the fact that for all of the pain, Israel still stands. See, in verse 1 and 2, like we've already said, you've got this they, they've greatly oppressed, they've greatly oppressed. They have not, verse 2, gained the victory over me. 
The they is contrasted by the singular Lord who has done something wonderful. In verse 4, he has cut me free from the cords of the wicked. Structurally, this is the real center of the psalm. This is what everything has been driving towards and from which everything unfolds. And the imagery of the plow carries on. So the oxen is hitched up to the plow, plowing the nation under. But look at what God does, verse 4. It's as though he leaps into the middle and he severs the cord that is binding the plow to the ox. And so the plowing ceases. The people are free. It's a righteous rescue because God here is fulfilling his promises. From the very first moment of his promises to Abraham, he's spoken of a time when he will free Israel from their enemies. Here is Yahweh, the great I am, making those promises to Moses in Exodus chapter 3. Keeping his promises now, rescuing his people. As a result now, God's people can live in peace. And for us, as we read this from our perspective now, hundreds and thousands of years later, looking back on the finished work of Jesus, where we can say, truly, this has been done. In Colossians 2, verse 15, Paul says that as Jesus dies, in that moment, he triumphs over Satan, the great enemy of God's people. He and his minions are put to public shame and defeat. And so this rescue that the psalmist sings of, well, it is fully and finally accomplished in the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. He's now at the right hand of God with all cords severed, publicly reigning and ruling. And so truly we can say now that actually they have not gained the victory over me. They have not gained the victory over us, our persecuted brothers and sisters around the world. The victory has not been gained over them. In fact, the victory has been won by Jesus. And as that is done, we see God for who he is. Righteous, keeping his word, fulfilling all of his promises to his people. And so there's one simple application at this halfway point. And it's what we thought about right at the beginning. The gates of hell shall not prevail against God's people, against the church of Christ. You know, I wonder what you make of the situation in the UK as you look around, or the situation in some of those places we prayed for in the mission prayer. We can so easily, can't we, see a a weak and a weakening church. That's how it can feel. We can see a church, God's people, that feels like it's losing its prophetic voice in public and even in private. We see a a creeping hostility in our own context towards God and his ways. I was speaking to a friend just the other day who's a teacher down in England who's currently being investigated simply for answering a question about the uniqueness of Jesus in a classroom context. As we've said already, we see brothers and sisters facing This sort of plowing in an intensity that that often, to my shame, I fail to, to even think about. But here, it's like we're seeing an Old Testament trailer of Jesus' confidence at the eternal security of his church. The gates of hell shall not prevail. They will try. It's the promise. They will throw themselves against the church. But ultimately, they will founder against the rock of God's faithfulness. And the work that he is doing in Christ. 
And as I've been mulling on this psalm for a little while now, it struck me that for many of us, I guess, in our own personal experience, these words are going to be more of a preparation than anything else. Lord willing, our freedoms in our country will continue, but we don't know what will come. However, we know that each and every one of us either are now or will experience some form of suffering and opposition for the name of Christ. Jesus promises it. And God in his love and in his care warns us and prepares us in his word such that when the plowing comes, we're not going to be caught out. We're not going to be led astray. We're not going to be despairing. And it's a great discipline, particularly for any who are on the younger end of the spectrum, to weigh and pray through these truths now such that actually your convictions are formed when you're put to the test. And you're not having to ask, well, where is God in the heat of the furnace? It may well be that some of the older saints among us can testify to that lesson learned, either in hardship or in blessing. But you see, the psalmist then, the people then, and us now, where we can have confidence. You are heading, pilgrim, even here in St. Pete's in 2017, to the heavenly Jerusalem. It will never be submerged. You are heading with heavy feet, yes, Well, but you can walk on singing, trusting in the God who has set you free. The psalmist, though, doesn't finish there, does he? We've got verses 5 to 8. We're going to look at this a little bit more briefly. But we see, secondly, in terms of a major heading, if you're taking notes, the confidence of God-centered perseverance. You see, he takes the certainty of what God has done in the past, and he now applies it to life in the present. Now, there are all sorts of reasons for confidence in life, aren't there? I'd invite you actually just to to think for now, what are the things that give you confidence in your own life? I was uh, thinking about this in the context of St. Andrews, and one that often comes up there, like I was mentioning earlier, is self-confidence. It's a place where people often project this image of themselves, the idea that I can do whatever I need to do, and we can import that and baptize it even in our Christian life. But then sometimes people have what we might say is a fatalistic confidence. You know, que sera, sera, I shan't sing it to you and inflict that upon you. But whatever will be, will be. You know, whatever comes, we just have to get on with it. Or then there's the the nihilistic confidence that actually our world increasingly holds out. I grew up with a lot of Monty Python on in the background. And so the words of Eric Idle always look on the bright side of life. Life is quite absurd. Death is the final word. So you might as well make the best of a bad job. Is the summary. All of these are grounds for confidence for some. But here in verse 4 and onwards, well, we have a greater confidence, the work of God Himself. But it goes in a funny direction in verse 5. Did you notice that? It's the fact that the present haters of God and His people, well, they are going to face a certain judgment. Now, people get split in verses 5 to 8 over whether this is a a prayer that Israel are to ask for God to frustrate and judge his enemies, or whether this is a statement of confidence, of certainty. I think it's a both and, really. This is a true thing that will happen, and so God's people draw on that fact, even in their present suffering. See, God says that though the cords of oppression have been cut, well, the experience of oppression continues. There still were then and are now enemies of Zion, those who are opposed to God. 
And so faced with the real and cruel enemies, well, God's people can still have confidence that they will not succeed. Breaks down into three uh, different ways, three different images that we've got. Verse 5, may all who hate Zion be turned back in shame. There's no success for the enemies of God. To contrast, if you were to cast your eyes just across to Psalm 128 and verse 2, to God's people. There, God promises that his people will succeed. They will eat the fruit of their labor. They'll see the, the prosperity that they have won through their fear of God. Well, here, literally, in verse 2, God's enemies are not able to do what they have sought to do. Their plans are frustrated. In verse 6 and 7, there's no permanence to them. Not only are they going to fail at what they're trying now, but whatever they do do, well, it's not going to last. We've got another really vivid farm image here. They're going to be like grass on a roof. Think of the, the flat roofs that you would have had in Israel in those days. And, you know, grass gets everywhere, doesn't it? It finds its roots and it's able to to grow and flourish a little bit. But actually, the grass on this rooftop, verse 6, is never going to put down deep roots. Do you see that in verse 6? As it grows, well, it withers before it gets to any sort of maturity. So that verse 7, when the reaper comes along, even looking for a little bit of hay to give to his farm animals, well, there is nothing there. You can picture the, the frustrated worker in the field looking to pad out his takings for the day, so he thinks, I'm going to get some of the grass from the reef. But for all his labor, he can't even get enough wispy strands to fill his arms. Imagine that of people, God says. It's a scary thought for the enemies of God, that they're going to be like immature grass that fades before it can properly flourish. Contrast that to Psalm 126 and verse 6, where God's people, though their experience are tears now, where they look forward to abundant harvest in the future. The final image of God's judgment is perhaps the most chilling one in verse 8. There is no blessing from God for these people, but more even than that, there is not even the comfort of someone wishing blessing upon them. See that in verse 8? May those who pass by not say to them, the blessing of the Lord be on you. We bless you in the name of the Lord. The whole of the Psalms is taken up with the blessing God gives those who fear him and love him. It's right there in the the introduction of Psalms 1 and 2. Blessing is found in meditating on God's word and in obeying his king, his anointed one. Well, here there is no blessing, no good from God, no good of God, no lasting kindness and no ongoing relationship. Like I say, not even the echo of blessing in the well wishes of people. This is the future for God's enemies. And this is the comfort for God's people. Now that can feel just a little bit harsh, can't it, for us today, I think. You know, some might say this is all just too stereotypically Old Testament, somehow asking for, for God's enemies to be judged. It can feel unchristian even. And it's right that we should pray that actually God's enemies would not be judged, but that they would come to know him and taste and see that the Lord is good. And yet it is a genuinely Christian encouragement. If you were to read later 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, Paul says to the persecuted believers in Thessalonica, there is a day of judgment coming. 
And you will be revealed as being God's people. And those who hate you, well, they will only face his right and proper anger. There is no reveling in that for God's people here, let me say. This is not something that is to bring the singer joy. But rather there is a God-centered confidence that God is God. And they are asking him to be true to his own promises, to save his own and to judge those who would hate him and who would oppress them. This is who God is. And so the, the attuned singer then and now is to take comfort from the fact that justice will be done. Again, think of our persecuted brethren around the world. Places where to even own a Bible is to put yourself at risk of being disappeared. I want to suggest it is a good thing that justice will be done. When you think of those who are killed for following Christ, even the Sunday I preached this in St. Andrews, Palm Sunday, as I was speaking, those bombs were going off in those churches in Cairo. It is a good thing that justice will be done. And if I'm speaking to someone who knows personally the pain of, of persecution for the sake of Christ, maybe you've been passed over at work, or there's tension in your family, or former Christian friends who are now ostracizing you for the stands you're taking for the gospel. I think of a lady in our own church family being hounded by people simply because she is a believer. Well, if that is you, God knows, like we've said, and justice will be done. And so you can have comfort. It's a sobering thing, but ultimately encouraging. Because as we look at our world, and we wonder where's it all going and what's happening now, well, actually, we need not wonder. We can know that God is God, and he will work out his purposes. So where does that leave us then? For those of us with heavy feet, what's it going to look like to keep on walking? I want to close by uh, telling you a wonderful story, a man that many of you will uh, know of and have heard of, William Carey, sometimes referred to as the father of modern missions. He was converted as a young man. He was born in, a, in real poverty. He was a cobbler's apprentice. But after he came to faith, he went to India, where he suffered remarkably. He, he had a burning passion to get the gospel out, and yet was opposed at every turn. He lost family and loved ones. Even those in his own church circles rebuked him for wanting to go and preach the gospel to those who didn't know Jesus. Just before he died in 1834, he knew that people wanted to write up his life. And he wrote this, I just think these words are tremendous, and a real expression of a life lived under the sound of Psalm 129. He said, if one should think it worth his while to write my life, I will give you a criterion by which you may judge of its correctness. We don't write like that nowadays, do we? If he gives me credit for being a plodder, he will describe me justly. Anything beyond this will be too much. I can plod. I can persevere in any definite pursuit. To this I owe everything. It's a very humble vision of the Christian life, isn't it? Plodding. Those of you who aren't up on English slang, that just means walking slowly, putting one foot in front of the other. But you know, that's what life is like, isn't it? For so many of us, 
we wonder, well, will I still be faithful in 25 years' time in the face of the hardship and the sickness and the opposition and the challenges and my own failure in the battle against sin and my own fears for my loved ones and the world? Will I still be faithful? Well, the Lord knows. But can I be faithful tomorrow? Yes. By God's grace, I can. Can you, in an hour's time, be trusting in Christ and singing his praises? Yes, by God's grace, you can. Can you keep on putting one foot in front of the other? Yes, by the mercy of God, you can, for he is your righteous redeemer. The writer to the Hebrews says in pastoral care, today, as you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Let tomorrow take care of itself. Today, St. Peter's Dundee, Hamish Snedden, Scotland, Lord willing, as you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts and keep on putting one foot in front of the other. Shall we pray? But the Lord is righteous. He has cut me free from the cords of the wicked. Father God, we acknowledge and confess and worship your name for the fact that you are righteous. Thank you that you are the God who makes promises and that you are the God who by his own grace and mercy and work keeps promises. Thank you that those words of liberation were true then. And thank you that they are even more true now in depth and experience, for Christ has conquered. Thank you that in his death he severed the cords of sin that would bind us. That though we were once dead in transgressions and sins and following the ways of the ruler of this world, thank you that you by grace in Christ and by your spirit have raised us with him. That by his blood, through his death, we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Thank you that for freedom Christ has set us free. Thank you that he has poured his spirit upon us, that we might know him. Help us therefore, Lord, to live in the light of this freedom. Keep us walking faithfully, plodding when needed, putting sin to death, encouraging one another, speaking of this great Redeemer to any and every who would hear, that more and more might know of the liberation that is found only in you and your work. Lord, I particularly pray for any brothers and sisters tonight who are weighed down and struggling with the oppression of the world or the flesh or the devil. Please, by your spirit, would you grant them a a deep and true knowledge and experience of the liberation that is found in Jesus? Would you strengthen drooping hands? Would you lift our downcast eyes, not to the horizon of our effort, but to the eternal horizon of a heavenly, wonderful Jerusalem, where every tear will be wiped from every eye, and where we will see our great Redeemer face to face. Lord, until that day comes, guard us in heart and in mind, 
and keep us walking, we pray. For we ask it in the great and glorious name of our liberator, Jesus himself. Amen.